Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Literacy View. We have another special episode for you tonight. Uh, we have Maureen Ruby with us, and Maureen, Dr. Maureen Ruby, holds the Isabel Farrington Endowed Chair in Social, Emotional, and Academic Leadership in the Farrington College of Education and Human Development at Sacred Heart University. An associate professor, Ruby is a dentist turned educator. That's right, you heard it right, dentist turned educator who represented the North Brantford Public Schools as the 2000 Teacher of the Year and was a Connecticut State Teacher of the Year semifinalist. Maureen has worked at the elementary, middle, and secondary levels as a classroom teacher and reading consultant. She holds Connecticut certifications in elementary education, special education, remedial reading, literacy consultancy, and leadership, including the 093 Certificate for Superintendent of Schools. Upon receiving her PhD from the University of Connecticut in special education with a focus on literacy, Maureen served as program coordinator of the graduate reading program at Eastern Connecticut State University Department of Education. She was also a supervisor of professional learning and staff development in New London Public Schools and was an assistant superintendent of the Brookfield Public Schools. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Maureen Ruby, um, she has such an interesting background, and usually we don't start off the show talking about somebody's journey, um, but since this month is about Mother's Day and super moms, um, we invited Maureen on to the show because she epitomizes that super mom and super educator. So yay, Maureen, we're so happy mm -hmm. to have you. So if you could just tell us a little bit about um, how you changed careers and why you changed careers, and then we'll get into the article for this evening. Well, thank you, Faith. Um, you know, I never, ever, ever wanted to be a teacher. I have to be honest with you. Although if I look back on my um, on everything I've ever done, I was teaching was always a part of who I was. I'm the oldest of seven children. So I was always teaching my siblings. Um, I uh, have the um, memory of teaching one of my siblings how to read. Because I, 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 I loved reading. I was a swimming teacher. When I was in uh, college, I did volunteer teaching. And then as a dentist, if you really think about medical professionals, even though they're not trained teachers, um, they are teaching. Because if you're a good practitioner, you're teaching your patients because you want them to have excellent health. And so as a dentist, um, in my opinion, you are teaching. You are always teaching. Um, no, I was a dentist and I was in the public health service, uh, the U.S. public health service as a commissioned officer, because I was really um, focused on dedicating my service to the underserved. Um, then I got married and had kids. That was pretty scary because nobody really prepares you for that. Just because you were a kid and you like kids, that's really not qualification for being a parent. 
And um, I kind of muddled along through that. And it worked out pretty well for me with my first two children. And then the third one came along. And while he was the cutest thing ever and uh, gregarious and charming, he just didn't do the things that my other kids did. And let me just be really specific. As a diagnostician, I actually diagnosed him. I diagnosed him with failure to do the rhyming thing. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, like my other children. So I took them to the mom and taught things that, you know, I wanted to be a good mom. So I did what I thought I was supposed to do. And I had the experience of taking my other children to a thing called teddy bear rhythms where there was they were waving scarves to music and I had no idea what the heck we were doing it for, but you know, I was going to be a good mom. So I did it. And then I brought this kid and it was like the dog at obedience school that goes the opposite way of the other dogs. He had his own, he was marching to the, the beat of his own drummer. And I knew there was something not right. And so um, I'm a little weird. Uh, I know that when people put things in newspapers that you can't see, that they were required by law to do that. And so I'm nosy. And so in my junk drawer, of which all of my drawers were junk drawers, I had a magnifying glass. And so I took out my magnifying glass and I looked in this little, you know, hometown paper and I saw this thing that said that the if you had a concern about your preschooler that, you know, the Board of Education wanted to help you. And I'm thinking, what a great world we live in. Like the Board of Education, they're so amazing. They want to help me. I told my husband when he came home from work, because we had talked about this failure to rhyme thing. And I called the board of ed and they gave me an appointment and I brought my precious little child down to him, down to the board. And um, some lady came out and took him in the back for half an hour. Half an hour is a long time when you don't have, it was pre-cell phone. They didn't tell me who they were, where they were taking him. I just trusted And like, it seemed like days, they brought him back to me and he was covered with stickers and seemed pretty happy. And I asked like, duh, like what, what's the deal? And they told me that there was no deal that he, he, that he was fine. (laughs) And I was like, no, I brought him here because there's something not right. And the woman told me she was this very cute little young girl. And she said, you need to trust me. I'm the professional. I'm a professional. I'm like, I said, what does that mean? And she said that she had just graduated from a local university with her bachelor's degree in special education. I'm thinking, oh, my God. Um, Anyway, I left with no paperwork. She didn't have anything for me. And I decided that in order to save this child, I needed to change careers. It was that simple to me. I I knew there was something that wasn't right. I'm a diagnostician. I can tell typical from atypical. And this was not typical and they didn't get it. So I went to school to become a teacher basically because I really couldn't sacrifice this beautiful child. The unfortunate thing that happened um, to, to keep it really concise is that I went through the whole program of teacher preparation and I took the test and I got certified and I actually got a job as a teacher. And it was frightful. To be standing in front of these beautiful children that people entrusted me with that first day of school, I was a first grade teacher. And I looked at them and I'm rather tall. I'm sitting down so you can't see that. And I wore heels at the time. So I was really even taller. 
And these were little tiny children. And I thought, and I won't say the words I thought in my head, because that would not be cool on your show. But I thought, Anything oh, goes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I have to teach these children to read. And I haven't got a clue. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that was pretty scary because even though I went through all the little courses and I did all the little projects, I was not really taught how to teach reading. But I I felt very um, fortunate in that I was older and I knew that I didn't know. And I was able to avail myself of resources. Now, they had just invented the internet. I think um, Al Gore invented it, or I read that someplace. I'm not really sure that that's true. But the internet had been invented, and I kind of sort of knew how to use a, a computer. And I started looking for information. And I found this article. I didn't know how you get articles from universe. I, I didn't know. And I saw the fellow's email address. And so I emailed him. And it happened to be a researcher at Haskins Laboratory at Yale. And Haskins is a, is a, a, a very re, well-renowned place for um, literacy and speech and language. And so I wrote, I knew how to do an email. That was pretty cool. And so I sent an email to this individual who wrote the article because it was only an abstract. And I wanted the article and I didn't know how to get it. And he wrote back to me and he asked me for my address. And it turned out that he lived up the street from me, this like world famous researcher. And he said, I'll just drop it off in your mailbox. And so I met this man. And so I forged a relationship with Haskins Lab. And, you know, I could go on for days telling you about the story, but I availed myself of the resources that I had available to me and met the um, Al Liberman, whose wife is the person who like identified phonemes and um, Don Shankweiler and Ann Fowler. I met all these people that you read about and it was amazing. And so that launched me on my career. But at the same time, I still had to fight the battle in schools to help have my son get help. And that took from the time he was in first grade until he was in sixth grade. So many PPTs. If I had frequent flyer miles for PPTs, we'd all be going on a real big trip right now. (laughs) Um, Because let me tell you, I had more PPTs. So that's how I transitioned into education. But once I got into education, I had to find my own way. And um, even though I was battling to help my son, and it wasn't really a successful battle until we got to middle school, and he couldn't really spell in consecutive times correctly, his last name, which only has four letters in it, um, I was continually trying to learn everything I could learn because I hadn't learned it in school. And I ended up going and getting a PhD in special education and literacy, as you said before, and then felt that I needed to spend my time trying to help teachers because I believe that teachers They were like me. I was a good person who just wanted to do good things. And I paid to go to school and I did all the work, but I didn't come out with what I needed. So teachers are in these jobs and they don't have the tools in their backpacks to do the jobs that they needed to do. So I needed to get this PhD to support teachers who were just 
nice people like me who wanted to do good for, for students. I'm so that's really the right journal. There. I'm going to stop you right there. So you know that um, I was a coach with Reading First. Judy is a coach with the New York City school system. So both of us do work with teachers. And so we know how important uh, that job is. So that's going to help lead us into our article that we're going to be talking about today. Because Maureen, your background, not only working with your son, but your experience as a professor and in leadership roles in schools, besides being a classroom teacher, you really walk the walk. I mean, you've done it. Um, we would love to hear your opinions. So I'm going to start off by introducing the article. Um, and then um, we're going to turn it over to you and, and Judy Boxner to, to discuss some of this. All right. So the article is New York is forcing schools. I love this title. New York is forcing schools to change how they teach children to read. It's a New York Times article by Trey, excuse me, Trey. <laughs> I have a French Trey, so that's on my mind, by <laughs> Troy Klassen. And um, it is about how the schools are um, looking at rolling out um, new curriculums next year and how, um, you know, the city at this point is struggling since they have to make these changes. So I guess my first question to you, Maureen, and then I want Judy to jump in, is the idea that they talked about um, how principals feel um, as though they're being um, forced to have to take on a new curriculum when, in fact, they've always had um, the independence to choose um, what they wanted to use in their schools. How do you feel about that? Having had a son go through this, having seen the difficulties, what are your thoughts about this? Well, I'm I'm actually going to take it from a different perspective, if you don't mind. Being an assistant superintendent of schools and coming into a district where um, there uh, there were no curricular tools, and I want to make the distinction between curriculum and a curricular tool. So, what the New York, as I read the New York City um, uh, report in the New York Times article. They are. They have three curricular tools to choose from, mm-hmm. because a curriculum is something that a district designs, and the tool is mapped onto the curriculum. Mm-hmm. So I think that school districts are really at a loss when they don't have an articulated curriculum, which really needs to be aligned with the standards. So I'm what what when principals say they don't have a choice. They really do have a choice, okay? Because if the curriculum is aligned with the standards, then they get to pick from one of these tools that the that the New York City Public School District has sanctioned. You can choose from, you know, and it was Witten Wisdom and two other schools, two other programs. And then the other the other underlying truth is that there is no 
perfect program. Mm -hmm. There's no perfect program. And so if you're trying to um, teacher proof, okay, um, what's going on in schools, that's a very, that's a a, a fatal flaw, okay? Because the teachers are the most important element in a student learning outcomes. And so we have to support teachers and have a strong curriculum and have a curricular tool that's mapped to the curriculum and the principals and the teachers say, oh, you know what? This, is, this isn't strong in this curricular tool. We need to add in this. There's too much of this. We need to take it because it's all aligned to a curriculum. So the, the principals, if they're instructional leaders, and that's another whole story. Are we actually preparing our principals? Are we giving them the background in um, education that they need to really be instructional leaders? Because that's what the meaning of print of principal is. Principal means principal teacher. So the principal teacher in a school is the instructional leader. And so those leaders do have choice, even though they're being asked to select from one to three to five, depending upon, you know, New York City's having three curricular tools. And I don't know if that really gets at what you're what you're asking. I think that's an interesting um, perspective. Judy, what do you think about Maureen's take on the question that I asked as far as um, having to fill in where um, perhaps there are some weaknesses in a program that could be chosen, or as Maureen said, the tool that is chosen as a coach. Um, how do you feel about that? So I appreciate that Maureen spoke something that I that really resonated with me. There is no perfect program. We are going to see things that we know probably doesn't align with the science and we will still need to make shifts. Also, science still shifts, right? Today, something is told, you're told that it's best practice. That might not be the case later. So I think it's it's almost like a new normal that we have to really start looking at the evidence. We have to look at our data really carefully because this whole problem started a very long time ago. I started officially teaching in 2000. That's when I started teaching. And I remember at that time, and I was a young kid, I was 22 years old, just out of college. It was like, say goodbye to phonics time. So it was like, I saw open court and I saw the letter the people same, all over the same place. experience. Right. The same and then, experience. and, and there I was in the classroom, it was going away and balanced literacy was coming. And that doesn't mean that there weren't some good things. There were some things that were great, but there were really, really big problems. So I think this is historical that New York is going to be like a pioneer. The whole world, the whole country is watching what's happening in New York. And I'm so proud. I know that behind the scenes, this has been kind of like the groundwork was framed with even universal literacy and we brought in phonics, but this chancellor, he got up in front of everybody with the mayor and said, that's it. We got it wrong. We're going to do better. And I am so damn proud. And I'm so happy because I have worked in situations where there was zero tools, zero curriculum. And, and it was breaking my heart to see like 
teachers that just graduated college having to write curriculum and lesson plan and make sure they um, include all the standards. And I'm like, that's awful. That's not what they signed up to be doing. I don't want to write curriculum. So I think that this is an exciting time. I think it's historical. But I also think, you know, a lot of things are going to say it's evidence-based now and everybody's throwing around the word research-based, SOR. We're still going to have to watch like hawks to see what's going on. What are the results? Where do we need to shift? Because you might see little sprinkles of things that you don't want to see, right? Looking at the picture might still be in some lesson plans and you know the research is saying, no, we're going to look at the word and slide at point of difficulty or when we're decoding. So. Um, Thank you, Maureen. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I I have the same experience as Judy, and I started teaching much earlier than Judy. So um, I, I started teaching in 1986, and I had the same experience where I, I was 21 years old when I started teaching. And, um, you know, they were pulling the open court sound cards off the wall. So do you, you mentioned, Maureen, that you love open court. And it was, you know, Boba beating heart. Um, mm-hmm. You know, all of those sound cards were being pulled off the walls. And it was all about whole language at the time. So I've seen these shifts. And as Judy said, you know, one thing comes in, something goes out. But something really struck me about this article, and I'd like to know what you think, Maureen. It said here that um, waivers to opt out will only be considered for schools where more than 85% of students are proficient in reading. So opt out by principals saying, Mm -hmm. we don't want this, okay? a threshold that only is about 20 schools, really, that 20 schools meet. So now my feeling is your son, who, um, Maureen, who has dyslexia, learning disabilities, but is brilliant and um, has a mother who is highly educated or a dentist turned educator, um, it's very likely that your son could have been one of these students in a high-performing school district where the school district might have looked like it was doing really well, but your son might have been in that 15% of um, kids not reading or doing well. So the question is, I'm thinking, what do you think of principals opting out if maybe their school district is high-performing? What about those kids who are in these high-performing school districts, but they are still not reading? So that's a great question. And in Connecticut, we have the same thing. So my question is, and it's hard to get at the um, at the evidence of, about this, but we, we pretty much know that in high-performing districts, there are um, socioeconomic differences typically. Um, and when... Um, Parents see that their kids aren't performing to the level that they think they should be in high-performing districts. They oftentimes have the means to hire tutors. Right. So what? So (laughs) so so what? Yeah. So what's the cause and effect? You know, just be just because 
a district is high performing, we need to really peel back the layers of the onion to find out what's really going on. Um, and all children count. All children count. It's not okay that 15% or 10% or 2% aren't reaching um, benchmarks because our, I, I believe that our role as educators is to set children up for success so that at the end of a 13-year career in public education, when they get to that 12th grade year, they are positioned to make decisions about their life, not be relegated to you can only do this. And, and if they're not reading, um, literacy is a gateway skill to everything. And so we are handcuffing them to um, to uh, it, it's a it's a public health issue because if they cannot get if they don't have an education they're not literate and they uh, can't and get gainful employment they don't have access to health benefits through insurance they don't have access to health care nutrition it's a it's just a cascade of disastrous outcomes for children so I would I I, I would really want to have more data on what's really happening in those school districts, because I doubt highly that there are school, there are different schools in the district that are performing just using the tools that aren't working for other kids. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I would applaud those districts for those schools in the district for doing well, but I would want them to take a really careful look at what's going on because we see it. We see it in in what you're explaining. We see it in districts in Connecticut. We see it in districts across the country. You know, unfortunately, money talks, and that is not when we're talking about equity, and we're talking about um, really supporting all of our students and not marginalizing students. It needs to be all, and if it's not all, and parents are footing the bill silently because they don't want to be that squeaky wheel. I will just tell you that I've, as an administrator, I've had, you know, teachers come and they're good people. And they're like, oh my goodness, these parents. And I go, oh, don't talk about these parents because, <laughs> because I was that parent that nobody wanted to ever see coming because um, they say, oh, parents are crazy. And I say, no, there, maybe there are some, but maybe that's like 1%. But when we don't, what are you laughing at, Judy? When we, when, 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 we, when we don't meet the needs of students and the parents are coming to PPTs and meetings, we make parents crazy. Correct. If you're a parent and you have a child and you're, that is like your responsibility is to ensure that every single day of your child's life is the the best that it can be. And so if they're a student and they're going to school, you can't just let them go to school and rot on the vine. You have to make sure that every day is a bet they they're they're better than they were the day before. And so when you go into a PPT meeting and they say he's making progress and you like extrapolate it and like, yeah, you're making progress, but he's gonna have to live to be 175 before he ever closes the gap. That may that will make a parent crazy. And parents are, you know, it's, we're all humans and we have emotions and our emotions and our ties to our children are the strongest bond that there can be. 
And so we have to be very, you know, you can throw SEL and everything to be very sensitive to the relationship that parents have with their children. And it's our duty as educators to make sure that we are maximizing the students' opportunities. And so if we have a program that is not research and evidence-based, and there's a difference. And I hate when people throw around the term research-based because you and I, the three of us actually could sit here and we could develop a little program in the next hour to teach something that's research-based. But that doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. And when salespeople come into schools and say it's research-based, that is, I know you have a BS meter in there someplace. (laughs) It should be like, get it out. It should be going off, right? Because, (laughs) thank you, because we need to not, research-based is not enough. It has to be evidence-based. And it has to be evidence-based with the demographics that we're serving. Okay, and so this brings in our cultural sensitivity and cultural relevance. And we would have to go on a two week cruise to discuss all of these things. But I think that one of the reasons why some administrators balk against some of these things is because change is hard. Yeah. And and people and people are are threatened. And I will tell you this just quick little story, if it's okay. I I reached, I I confronted the same things as a central office administrator. And I realized that I had really amazingly wonderful people who were in administrative positions in schools, but they were put in positions and asked to do things that they didn't have the skill set to do. And so as, as an example, I took these administrators to training to become mentors in um, in an assessment tool. It's called a cadence. I'm just going to put it out there. A okay, cadence. Cadence. okay, just saying. Okay, <laughs> and I took them to uh, to a training. I'll be honest. I took them to Las Vegas wow. in the summer for a week because that's where they were doing the cadence training. Like Judy, don't say well. Wow, you, okay, you didn't okay. call me. Acadience, uh, because Las Vegas in July is like not a place you want to be. True. And so that, so a lot of conferences are held there. And I told these lovely people, I said, oh, don't get all excited. We're going to be like seven to five in training, five days. You're going to be exhausted. It's super hot out there. It's really not going to be fun. And <laughs> we went. And my principals, and I love these people, they got trained in they became Acadians mentors and their eyes were opened because it's not just how to do it. It's the science behind it. And they, and they were able to go in with their teachers and assess students themselves and go to data team meetings and talk about what the data meant and then design instruction. And so these principles were like on fire because they understood what was going on. And that's, I think that's the, that's the secret sauce. That's the secret and sauce. I want to the secret you sauce. There. It's, it's really <clears throat> understanding why you do what you do. So I'm going to turn this over to Judy because you said many things that I'm sure, um, you know, Judy could connect with. One, Judy lives in Connecticut. Greenwich, Connecticut. In Greenwich, Connecticut. 
And so she's very familiar with what goes on in Connecticut, but then goes to work every day to New York City um, and works in the Bronx. So it's really a tale of two cities. And when you take a look, definitely you you see the difference in terms of the haves and the have-nots, what people can afford outside of the school system. And, um, you know, but then the scores in districts will reflect that these kids are just doing fine and dandy in these very high performing districts. And many of those parents are getting help outside the um, school system. And then, of course, you see in the city, you have kids that don't have those same opportunities. So, Judy, um, I'm sure you have a lot to say right here. And of course, you always talk about Acadians and how um, meaningful the data is. So jump in, go ahead. All right. So I really actually appreciated what Maureen did with her principles. I think that's amazing that you actually had the leaders, A, get trained as Acadians mentors, but B, actually testing the kids. That is amazing because even as a coach, sometimes I collect a lot of data but you got to feel that data in your blood, in your soul. You got to see what's happening. You got to see what are the kids doing? What are they struggling with? That is such a powerful, powerful thing that you did with your staff. And I hope that a lot more principals will start helping the teachers collect the data. That would be awesome. Because a lot of principals, I do see a shift where they're really thinking about the science, but collecting that data, seeing the kids, reading the words, seeing those nonsense words, seeing what kids do when they see that nonsense word, Mm -hmm. seeing what kids do when they're reading an oral fluency and they could only read three words per minute. That's, that's eye opening. So that could open up a lot, a lot, a lot of aha moments. Like, Hmm, those that were confused, maybe that could be a wake up call when you start collecting data. But I also think living in Greenwich, Connecticut for the last 12 years during COVID, which was back in 2019, that's when I was really, really, it started in 2009. Yeah, maybe I think it was 2020. COVID started in 2020. It actually started a little earlier, but whatever. So anyway, that's when I really started to see that there's an emergency. And there was an emergency in my town as well. Kids could not read at all. There were many kids that, you know, maybe they had a program like Foundations for a half hour. But the rest of the day was basically a workshop model where kids were being told, no, don't sound out the words. No, don't do that. Don't. Oh, you better look at the picture. So what a confusing message that was, even to kids in my town. And, you know, it's almost like, you know, it's like secrets behind closed doors. A lot of those parents don't want to scream out that their kids are struggling because you have these kids that are going to an expensive private school and uh, they're going to go on a full scholarship to some, some, you know, boarding school or something. And then you have your kid that you're like, Oh my God, my kid can't read. And that's happening in the suburbs. It's happening in the city schools. I've never seen anything like this. It's, it's, it's really sad. It's a um, secret. It's a dirty little secret. And it can't be a secret anymore. And I think parents are really, you know, starting to realize that. And, you know, Emily Hanford with Soul the Story, you know, parents were watching their kids on Zoom and they're like, wait, this is how we're teaching kids how to read? Mm. Yeah, it's already a little secret. You know what? 
You know, one of the things I was just thinking about what Faith was talking about with schools that seem to be doing well, you know, it's really important to look at what the grade levels are of those schools that seem to be doing well, because with the um, the unorthodox teaching of reading, um, kids can look like they're reading, exactly. but they're not really reading. And one of the things that I, um, when I was a, um, a, a literacy coach for our state, in um, one of the one of the um, national reading um, grant programs, um, I was watching kids being taught how to read with the queuing system, and I bought I call them maxi post its, and I brought the maxi post its and I just put them over all the pictures, and I said, "Oh, boys and girls, you know what? You know what the most fun part about reading is is reading the words, and yeah. then and then making the picture in your mind, and then." You can take this post-it off I do the and same see thing. how your picture looks like the like the illustrator. The other thing I did, which is a little crazy, but I'm a little crazy, is having asking kids not to read a word backwards, like start at the last letter, but read the words in a forward progression, but read the last word. And you know what? When you ask them to do that, they can't read the words. So you should be able to read the words. If you can read, if you can decode the words, you should be able to read them in a list. You should be able to read them backwards. You should be able to read them with the pictures, without the pictures. And kids just weren't doing that. And so, um, but when they're given the pictures and the words in the order that they were taught in, they look like they can read. 100%. And so they get, and if you use level texts, which don't start me, um, you know, how about when teachers set goals? Now, these teachers aren't these teachers aren't bad people. It's just how they've been set up. They've been set up to fail. So the levels aren't equal. It's not like a ruler where each inch is an inch or a centimeter is a centimeter. The levels are not like that. They're not equal intervals. And they would write goals for kids like a a first grade, a second grade student will increase four. FMP levels in a year. Whoa, what if the kid is at level D, which is kindergarten, and they advance four levels? They're going to be only in first grade. They're going to be further behind just because they met you. <laughs> okay. So, exactly. so this nothing. doesn't make sense. And that has to do with assessment literacy. And that's the other thing that I think we're talking about reading, but I'm going to submit to you that we need to do a better job supporting teachers with assessment literacy to understand what the assessment data are telling us. Because does it make any sense to have these poor teachers who are like, they're like the guy in the button factory, right? Like, and collecting data and just admiring it in a chart. Right, right. Like you have to, if you don't, Okay, if you went to the doctor, my teachers always hated this when I used medical analogies, but I'm going to use it anyway. If you went to the doctor and they ordered a bunch of tests and they and you got the bill for your copay and then they never told you what the data from the test meant, you'd be like, "Why why am I why am I paying for this? You would be hard. Why am I doing this? Why are you ordering all these tests if you don't need the these data?" To inform you as to take helping me be healthier, why are you doing the tests? So why are we doing tests on children if the data that are yielded from those tests 
aren't being used. And why do we have tier one, tier two, tier three in reading? Everybody's got that, right? Multi, multi-tiered systems of support. When tier one, tier one, we don't look at what's happening in tier <laughs> one. Sorry. Oh, you know what? Yes, I, I love it. And say, wow, look at the issues that we're seeing in the data in tier one. What's the problem of practice? How do we need to support teachers so that we don't have that problem in tier one? Because if we don't fix the problem of kids aren't broken, there's nothing wrong with kids and there's nothing wrong with teachers. But if we don't give teachers the tools and the support that they need, then it looks like there's something wrong with kids. So what's the problem of practice that's not that's that we're not dealing with? And so kids are filtering out of tier one into tier two, if we don't fix that, more and more kids are just going to be falling out of tier one into tier two. So assessment literacy. Okay. So I didn't say this at the beginning, but I know Maureen Ruby from reading first. And so this, I know you now, what, 20 years? I would say at least, at least, at least 20 years. And so Maureen was one of the presenters at our conferences. And I probably picked up that posted idea from you, Maureen. Tell you the (laughs) truth. You know, when you mentioned it, because I use that all the time. But, you know, you mentioned so many things about tier one instruction, which I'm always stressing. All these things that you mentioned, it's it to me, it goes back to reading first, which brings me to this idea of how history repeats itself. All right. Like reading this article, I could not help but think, okay, we went through this during the reading first years, the same thing, trying to move out certain programs that were not effective without the evidence space. And then there was pushback. And then before you know it, Um, the, what we did in reading first was not sustainable. And then schools started to go right back. And you, I'm sure you read in um, the article that that happened in New York city, Um, you know, different um, leadership came in and then made those changes. And we went right back to what we were doing before no child left behind and reading first. So this seems to happen quite a bit and teachers get really bitter about that kind of stuff. When you keep shifting back and forth, we're doing this, now we're going Understandably. Back. Yeah, understandably. So I guess, here's my next question. In the article, it mentions that the principals here, um, you know, feel, and I think it was stated that the city's principals union um, said that, They call this um, uniform curricula approach pedagogically unsound in such a large system to mandate that they have to pick from one of three choices and that everybody needs to now um, have a uniform um, approach to literacy. Um, You know, and I think that the teachers union the uh, president, Michael Mulgrew, was for that. But the principals, three out of four, three out of four seem to be very much against this. 
your thoughts on that? So what, this is my personal opinion. I think that we really need to take a good look at how we support principals. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who are principals are, well, most, I would say the majority of people who are principals want to do well by students. A hundred percent. However, let's be honest. Not all principals are trained to, um, if we put them in a classroom and expected them to teach literacy, dun, dun, dun. like, I don't know how that would work out. Um, so we need to do a better job at preparing principals to be the instructional leaders in literacy in elementary schools. So how do we do that? We need to rethink the training because it's it's very naive, in my opinion, to think. And I've worked with a lot of principals who are very good people and they need to they need to save face when they're doing their jobs. They can't walk into work and say, oh, my God, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but honestly, if people who are trained to be literacy um, uh, professionals have questions in uh, and, and question marks in their own professional development in literacy, how could we expect that a principal um, coming in? has that. And I'll tell you that one of the things that the university that I work at that I'm very proud of that they did when they changed their six-year program is they changed the coursework to have um, leadership for numeracy, leadership for literacy, and leadership for special education as three of the courses, because like we need to ensure that the leaders have that, um, that content knowledge and experience. And back to what we were talking about before with the amazing principals that I worked with, they went and they got trained in Acadians, either reading or math, depending upon what that that particular year. And the next year, if they did reading one year to be a mentor, they did mathematics the next year. And so they had that comprehensive understanding. And it wasn't until they did that, that they really got what it was that we were asking teachers to do. And so I think that, um, I, I think that higher ed has a role in this. And just like, I don't know in New York, but Judy, you know, in Connecticut, our schools all have the portrait of the graduate. Um, I would love to establish, if you want to help, just let me know, raise your hand, um, establish what's the portrait of an elementary principal, of a just beginning element. What, what do they need to know? So what do we need to provide them? They don't. They shouldn't have to go out and get that on their own. What is the portrait of the just ready elementary school teacher? And so if we could have superintendents and and teacher organizations, you know, helping us design that, and then we could could give that back to higher ed because it's not sustainable for districts in this country and across the world to have to keep training teachers and administrators who are already employed. It just, it, it, we can't do that. And I think that, I, I, I don't think that we have the wrong people in the jobs. I think that we have not provided them with the right sizing for the preparation that they need to do the job. We're all lifelong learners. So I'm not saying that, you know, we can, we can train people and give them the education and then they're done, but we have to provide them with the, the, the foundation 
so that they can build upon it and that they can grow with the changes. Nothing's going to be perfect. There's no program that's going to be perfect and work for all children, but we need to program-proof teachers and administrators, not teacher-proof programs. Oh, I love that. Oh, my goodness. I I want to capture those last words. Please say that one more time. Just that last... That was perfect. We we're not trying. To- we're not trying to teacher-proof programs. Find a program that it doesn't make any difference who you give it to. They can do it. We need to program-proof teachers so that a teacher, if the teacher and then also the administrator have the knowledge, have the literacy knowledge, have the pedagogical knowledge, have the cultural relevancy knowledge to understand, you know, the individual students and have the assessment knowledge, you can give them any program, except maybe a few, but I'm not going to mention them. Um, and they can they can look at the student data and they can look at the program and they can make instructional decisions. Because I'll tell you, um, Faith, I do worry about people who might believe that if you give, if you buy XYZ program and you put it in the hands of teachers, that everything is magically, it's like Calgon, you know, it's going to, you know, take care of everything. It's its not penicillin. It's not going to take care of everything. We still, the teacher is the most important variable in the equation. And Amen. if we, and if we leave teachers and the support of teachers out of this equation and we buy all this boxed stuff and bring it in, I'll give you an example. Like, okay. Let, let the world know since this goes out on the world's internet. I am a proponent of open court. One of the problems that teachers will say about open court is, oh my God, there's like too much stuff. Let me tell you something. You're not supposed to use all this stuff. It's like if you get, let's say, let's be really silly here. Let's say that you, you know, you fall for one of those things where you go to Macy's or some store and you're going to get, if you buy $36 worth of this kind of perfume, you're going to get this eyeshadow palette that has like 800 colors in it like seriously you don't put all 800 colors on your eyes right exactly you select the colors that you're going to use that day okay yes so when you get open court you don't have to do every single thing there are there are the assured things that need to be done but i could be a second grade teacher and the two of you could be a second grade teacher and i have more English language learners, or I have more, whatever. I have kids that more kids that were transfers in that had um, interrupted education. I may have to use the pre-teaching or the reteaching. You may not, but you know what? Nobody can tell you that. You need as the teacher to make the decision based on your knowledge of the students, your relationship with the students and reliable and valid data and your understanding of that. And so then you have the tool and it's like a, it's like the eye palette kit. Sorry if there are guys out there listening, but, um, and you decide what shade you're going to use. So you decide what part of that you need to use. You don't need to use reteaching and teaching and pre-teaching with every single student in your class. You need to know who your students are. And so there's not too much stuff in there. You just need to know how to use it. When, you, when you're when you going to make soup, you don't open up your refrigerator 
and take everything out of the refrigerator and dump it into a pot because it's in the refrigerator, you need to know what things you're going to use. You're not going to put cottage cheese into vegetable soup. And then complain because you, I don't know how to use the cottage cheese. No, you need to know how to use the cottage cheese. That's for something else. I know that's crazy, but it is what it is. I'm sorry, Judy. Yeah, I'm, I'm silly. I think Faith's MIA at the moment. But um, yeah, a lot of what you're saying makes complete sense. And I think one of the key things during times of change has to has to be accepting the change and seeing the results that we want takes time, right? It's not going to happen maybe the first year. Like a lot of teachers are doing the cadence right now and they're testing the kids right now. And, you know, they might not see the results. Change takes time, right? If the kindergarten classes start getting stronger, then they'll go to first grade stronger. Then the second grade teachers will have a better time as well. So, Change really takes some time. Seeing data shifts can take some time too. Sometimes they happen quicker than others. But, you know, one of the things that worries me, Maureen, is that, you know, with universities, I hope that they're held accountable. I don't know how that works. If it's a private university, you know, can they still do whatever they want? Will there still be people that fall for the BS? And the other thing that I was thinking about, like, so New York City, I really feel in my heart of hearts, is on a very good path right now. I really, truly, truly, I feel it. I see it. But the problem is that schools in New York City are under mayoral control. And every time that there's a new mayor and a new chancellor, sometimes everything starts over again. So the hope is that things are getting better and they continue to go in this direction for a long, long time to come. Oh, I want to build on what you just said about change takes time. So that that can't, you know, if you could say it louder for the people in the back, that would be very helpful. Change takes time. Because we're talking, we're looking at when you implement a, a new um, curricular tool that aligns with your standards and your curriculum, it's going to take three to five years. Now, that makes people uncomfortable, but that's reality because of what has to happen to make that happen. And you have to be, you have to guard, you have to have the right mindset doing that because otherwise you get people to say, oh, look, it didn't work. And then you go on it to the next thing. Work. And that's, that's very, very problematic. Um, so change takes time. It's like, it's like, um, it's like turning a turning a cruise ship around in the middle of the ocean. You know, it doesn't like happen like that. You've got to really be able to navigate and steer and know where you're going and how you're going to do it. And so it's that's very uh, that doesn't mean that we let the kids that need the help just sit and rot for three to five years. That's a difference. We need to be on those students and we need to also understand that. While people may not, I've, I, you hear a lot of people bad-mouthing like the Common Core state standards or whatever your version is in your state, because every even though the states that have their own standards, they're really based on the Common Core state standards. Um, when teachers or parents balk against them, one of the things that I've done is just take the 10 anchor standards, like say for um, informational text or for literature and say, could you just look at those 10 standards? 
And just tell me which ones you don't want to teach or which ones you don't want your child to have. Right. And anybody who looks at them is like, oh, well, I kind of want them all. Of course, because when you really take the time to look at them, there's nothing offensive about them. And so part of the problem that I see is that those anchor standards are really what in a lot of places, and I don't know about in New York City, but that's what the teachers have been given. But we haven't spent enough enough time with teachers looking across the grade levels to see the nuances of the differences. And so we're not really supporting the students in the the, the uh, finite way that we need to. There's a big difference between summarize and evaluate. And, you know, and we expect younger children to be able to do certain things. And we expect the older students to be able to do much more sophisticated things. But we need to support the teachers to be able to look at those standards and understand that there's just some there's just a minutia of a change sometimes in the language and understanding what the language means in terms of the academic move that students need to be able to navigate to do that. Because otherwise it just looks like one big blur and then every everybody's doing the same thing. So I think that's another problem. And that's why the curriculum of the school district has to be at the forefront. What's the assured experiences that we expect students to have in this grade level? And then it's going to vary how a, a teacher in a grade level is bringing that to bear in his or her class. And academic freedom that we have in higher ed is misinterpreted and shouldn't be misinterpreted in K-12. It's not about you teach what you want. There are certain things that need to be taught. Mm-hmm. How you go about that in your class in terms of timing and whatnot, I think we need to be more flexible. Everybody, if Faith and Judy and I were all teaching second grade, there shouldn't be the second grade literacy police person that comes in to see if we're on page 34. Mm-hmm. Because right. that is never going to happen if we're differentiating our instruction and meeting the needs of the learners in our room. And I'm glad you said that because um, I, I think that well-intentioned, again, I think you've said this before, people are well-intentioned, but I, I think the way I interpreted this article was that the principals felt as though you know they, they're um, having their independence taken away by having these choices presented to them and having to choose from these choices. But really, you can take a program and you could really look at it and have this flexibility to be able to do what needs to be done. I have a question for you. What do you think about this move to um, content area um, curriculum? Oh, content-rich curriculum? Yes, yes. So we've talked about that in Reading First um, years ago. Again, you know, um, this is not new. Uh, You know, the work of E.D. Hirsch was done many years ago, Mm -hmm. um, you know, cultural literacy and kids being able to have that broad background knowledge. What do you think? You mentioned you like open court. I also like open court very much. 
But there seems to be this move to, um, you know, content area, literacy, um, core curriculum. And, um, I, you know, and I think it's still important to have strategies like you just mentioned. Um, there's a big difference between summarizing and um, evaluating. We don't want that to get lost either, that kids need to be able to um, have these um, comprehension type strategies available to them while they are looking at different types of work in social studies and science. They have to be able to read all different types of um, literature and, and nonfiction work. Your thoughts on that? So I, I absolutely uh, hear what you're saying. And I think that that's where the standards really support us. So in the lower grades, <clears throat> while um, a lot of pro like CKLA and some other programs are like content rich, considered content rich yes. um, uh, uh, curricula or uh, curricular programs or tools, um, which is very good. I think the important thing to understand is what what we have um, to offer to young children in close reading. First of all, young children, when we're teaching them the code, kindergartners, first graders, second graders, they're not they're not even with those skills. They're not going to be able to read things that are what I would call worthy texts. That's not the purpose. We always need to understand what is the goal. Okay, so backwards planning. When we give a child a text to read, when they're learning how to decode. The goal is not for them to gain world knowledge from that text. Their goal is the goal is for them to practice and gain automaticity in the application of skills. However, we understand that there's a very big difference between reading comprehension and listening comprehension. Mm -hmm. So if they're reading a decodable text or a text, you know, that's appropriate for their for their um, instructional um, uh, teaching that they're getting, then we're going to be asking them very basic questions to make sure that they are not just word calling, but that they're actually thinking about what they're reading, that they're metacognitive. However, we know that they are capable of much more uh, understanding. So we're doing read alouds in the class and we're reading text that is worthy text that has a, that we have a goal for. And we're doing teacher think aloud. We're doing close reading. And we're talking about the strategies. We're teaching higher level thinking and metacognitive strategies through the reading of what I am referring to as worthy texts, where they're learning about whatever it is that is in our curriculum. So let's say that you were using open court does have worthy texts. Yes. But if you're teaching, if you're teaching young children, kindergarten, first, second graders, you're in Oh my goodness, are we teaching social studies and science? I hope so. Um, we're, we're exposing children through our close reading to content that is above their individual reading levels. And we should be doing that even when they are able to read in third grade and fourth grade. We should always be pushing the envelope because the other thing that's happening in those upper grades is we do have children who have dyslexia or reading disabilities. And we need to be constantly teaching those kids the comprehension strategies for grade standard 10, by the way, for grade level te complex text, even if they can't 
It says independently read grade level content text, but even if they can't read that, we still need to be teaching them that through our instruction so that as they're getting the supportive um, instructions to close the gap in their decoding ability, they're not then left, at, oh, I don't even, now that I can read it, my, I don't have any of the comprehension strategies. I don't have any of the higher order thinking strategies. I haven't dealt, developed my metacognition. We're doing that in our teaching. And so whether you're using a, a, a programmatic tool that's, that's marketed as a content rich um, because it's in there. It's like progressive soup. It's all in there. Or, <laughs> or we have or like, other. Or like tricks, magically delicious. Right. <laughs> or, or we're providing that in our other curricular um, areas. Um, so that would get me into this whole, we really need to do the cruise, the um, disciplinary literacy and disciplinary literacy is usually thought of as sixth grade through 12th grade. But it, in my my feeble little mind, and we really need to be thinking about disciplinary literacy in the lower grades and how we as the educators bring that to the children um, to set them up for success later on. Um, it's it's like the uh, teaching is so much fun, you know, if you really think about it. Um, and I think that it. If when I say teaching is fun, it's not about doing, you know, magic tricks and, you know, pulling chalk out of your ears and, you know, animal balloons and that kind of stuff. Actually teaching kids and watching them like be so hungry for learning. That is what that's what makes us tick as teachers. And you it, when, when you do it, when, when you expose kids to really um, intellectually stimulating, engaging material. They just rise to the occasion and they, in the lower grades, they don't need to be able to read it themselves because they're smart little guys and they can comprehend it, that, that listening comprehension and that scaffolding that we do for them. So we can have the best of both worlds, but we do need to make sure that kids are learning. There's stuff that they need to learn so that, and they need to learn it deeply so that they have, they have the strategies to learn more stuff deeply on their own. We want to create self-navigating independent learners through our teaching of learning. So Judy, you know, I think that we've had this conversation with Leslie Laud. We've had this conversation with Nate Joseph. I, From what I'm hearing from Dr. Maureen Ruby, that we can have this um, these strategies, and it's not so much that it has to be a boxed program, that as long as we know the standards and we know what needs to be taught and we could um, understand that kids need to learn how to decode K1 and 2, but at the same time, we need to be giving them social studies and science and the content and the vocabulary to be able to have mm -hmm. that foundation and to grow, that it's not so much of pushing a program. Your thoughts on this? Oh, and we had Natalie Wexler on too. So, you know, I think that we've had a lot of people on with, you know, differing opinions and um, about this. Any thoughts, Judy, on what we've been discussing and talking about our guests that we had on other shows. What are you thinking? 
So I think, you know, we're the type of podcast that really pushes the needle. We don't have everybody that agrees with everything 100%. But we always have those conversations to think about it, right? We, I definitely believe that strategy work is important and knowledge building in conjunction. But I think that the problem in education for a long time now has been that, you know, we got it wrong. We thought, okay, Got to prior kids aren't reading, so we should just prioritize reading and math and forget everything else. And maybe they'll get science one prep a week, or maybe somebody will come in that's not even that qualified or whatever to teach social studies. Wait, social studies? I haven't even seen that for a long time. Some schools have only science. Bring it back. I think everybody, all those people that you mentioned, I think that they would all agree that we need to bring it back and prioritize it. But once again, I think the problem is schools, we only have a limited amount of time of what the school day looks like. And I think that's going to be a key piece of the discussion. How are we allocating our time? What is the purpose of that time? And how are we going to make sure that kids get what they need? And, you know, you guys mentioned tier one. I'm with you. A lot of schools have been prioritizing tier one. Some schools more than than others. but I do think that in order to have a fully successful system that's functioning really well, we can't forget about that tier two. There's a lot of kids that need that extra practice. And I know you guys weren't saying that, but that's an area that I'm really passionate about because I think that could become problematic that, you know, many schools might finally be getting into strengthening that tier one instruction. But if you don't, take care of those other pieces. It's like a diet, right? We all need a healthy diet. And like we said, change takes time, right? I want to lose weight, but it takes time. I get on the scale tomorrow. It's still the same thing. Then I go to Orange Theory and then it's still the same thing. So I think (laughs) it's going to change. I'm working on it. I'm hydrating. But the bottom line is change takes time, but we have to start thinking about what are our priorities How are we going to budget that time? How are we going to make sure that we don't neglect science, social studies, that deeper knowledge, those deeper conversations, including trips? Get back to those trips. The Museum of Natural History and all those places, those are great too. And I don't see as much of that now. Um, I guess COVID had an effect on it as well. But um, yeah, that's basically it. We have a lot of work to do, I think, that the whole nation is watching us. I think we're on to something great. But here's the thing that puzzles me the most. How the hell did this happen? That we had such crappy data for such a long time. Everybody knew about it. It wasn't a secret. How did this happen that we let it go on for this long? Maureen, what do you say about that? Um. That's a great question, Judy. I think that it has to do with responsibility. And it was, it seemed to be okay to place, um, to, to look, have a deficit lens on there were just some kids that had. ADHD or had a learning disability or had this, that, or the other thing. And the problem was within the child. And that wasn't because people were 
being negative or they were bad people. I think they just didn't, like I said before, they didn't have the tools in their toolbox or their backpack to be able to address the problem. And the other thing, and I I, I kind of am hesitant to bring this up, but I know as a teacher, um, I, I, I my first PPT that I ever went to as a teacher, I was told not to say things at the meeting. Right. Okay, I'm going to tell you a very quick story if you have a minute. Um, I came home, we used to sit around the dinner table and talk about like what went good and what went bad during your day. Kind of, and when it got to me this one day, I said, oh, well, I had a really uh, kind of trick. I probably get fired tomorrow because my principal told me not to say something on a PPT. And I said it anyway. <laughs> and my son, my son, who has, who is the one that got me into this gig said, mommy, why are you always so worried about getting in trouble at work for doing the right thing? And I was thinking about that and it was like a comma in his, and he goes, because like, if you get fired, you could always just go to work with daddy tomorrow and he'll give you some of his patience. <laughs> and I was like, wow, a backup job. I could just go be a doctor, right? And that made me like more like on fire to do the right thing. But there's a lot of intimidation. Let's not kid ourselves, okay? There's a lot of intimidation that goes on. And um and so, you know, I, I think that that's just one small variable in, mm-hmm. in this very compounded problem. And people, when we went I don't even know what balanced literacy is. I know that's kind of crazy. I, I had an interview once where they asked me what balanced literacy was. And so I, I said, oh, man, I can't work here. So I said, oh, yeah, I think it's like when you have um, 50% reading and 50% writing, because I just wanted them to, like, cross me off their list. Um, like, we went to this balanced literacy, and we went to these leveled readers, and then kids looked like they were doing well. And then they went to another school, and all of a sudden, they weren't doing well. And then the people in that school are not trained to teach kids how to read. And so they went, oh, and they didn't know what to do. And so then we stopped having kids read. Remember, we just didn't have any books anymore. We did all like teach and tell kind of things. Like we would teach and tell. And so then kids didn't have to read anymore. And then they get to high school and the high school teachers, because I had this in, in, in districts that I've worked in where the high school teach English teachers go, oh my God, these kids haven't ever read a book, (laughs) right? A hundred percent, And so this sounds like people who aren't in education will think like, oh, these people must, they must be on drugs or something saying this. But literally the high school teachers would complain. They'd say, these kids never read a book. They never had to read anything. And um, and, and it's just a fact. I had in, in in my district, I said, what when when do the kids have choice on reading a book? Not the kids who just like choose to read whatever they want, but when do they choose to read a book? So the kids got to pick a book. And my colleague from Central Austin and I went to our eighth grade classes and we went in during this module where they were all reading self-selected books. And I saw kids, it was like it was like magical. There were kids reading book, like real books. There were kids reading on phones, there were kids reading on tablets. And they were all reading. And I walked in and we started talking to them and they started talking about, yeah, I'm reading this book and I'm going to, she's reading this other book and I'm going to read that next. And I had kids tell me, these were eighth graders. 
that this was the first time in their entire school career that they ever got to pick a book. That's insane. That is insane. So we're going to start thinking about wrapping up now. So last thoughts. I, I'm hearing everything you say, Maureen. I could hang on every word you say because Oh, you're you so said, sweet. But it's true. I'm not just, you know, I'm not blowing smoke. Yeah, Faith was very <laughs> excited about you. I I just <laughs> love listening to you because you just have so much common sense. You know, it's it's you you're real and you just say it like it is. So I'm hearing all this. And I keep thinking to myself, this article focused on these three particular programs that principals now are being given. They have to make decisions. But what I'm hearing you say is if they were instructional leaders and the teachers were prepared, it wouldn't make a damn difference that, you know, again, as long as they know what needs to be taught and you have something, obviously a quality program, I'm not saying that's not important. Exactly. Right. You know, I'm not saying that, but in the end, sometimes we could push some of those differences aside and realize if we know what's important and we could work with that and fill in the gaps it shouldn't be such a big problem. Is that what I'm hearing? I I, I really think that you're capturing it. I think that, uh, you know, the programs that states are and, and districts like New York City are offering to teachers across the country are um, programs that, you know, they're using ed reports, they're using Curate, they're using a lot of other reputable um rubrics you know that we can debate that another night um, <laughs> that's another but, conversation but yeah but when you really come down to it the key things are one that the district has a curriculum and going back to what judy said by the way teachers who come out of teacher prep school are not curriculum writers so it is a true injustice to say, okay, who wants to write curriculum and we'll pay you 35, 45, 55, whatever the going rate is in your area, uh, an hour to sit in a room with other people who are also not prepared or trained to be curriculum writers to write curriculum. That is, you might as well take the money and burn it, okay? And or have a party. Have a party, don't burn it. And and so Curriculum writing is not something that we teach teachers how to, there's a curriculum course. It's not curriculum writing. Teachers need support to, um, if you're going to, if they're going to write curriculum to learn how. We spent a lot of money in our district and other districts have done similarly to bring in top-notch, nationally recognized Heidi Hayes Jacobs, Maria Alcock, Jay McTighe, those people to train the teachers in curriculum development, curriculum mapping, and develop a curriculum for your district. Then you can take, I'm looking at your article, Wit and Wisdom, CKLI, EL, whatever it is that the, that the districts are offering as choices. And you have to map that, align that, you bundle the standards and you map what's in there. The curriculum tool is not the curriculum. The scope and sequence is not necessarily 
your scope and sequence, okay? It could align very nicely, but there may be tweaks. And then curriculum development is iterative and ongoing. So you and I, the three of us, are in a um, are in a grade level where this little grade level of three, and we're teaching pick a place in Nirvana, and we at, at and as and so in the curriculum there's X Y Z book, and we meet and we go you know X Y Z book that doesn't really resonate with the kids. Um, we should t- pick a different mentor text because we we we're in charge of the teaching, and so we can tweak that. You know what? When we looked at our, let's say you used Park or SBAC or some test, it's a third grade class. And when we look at our autopsy data, because that's what it is, game is over. We look at the autopsy data and we see where the children across our three classes didn't do as well. We don't say, oh my God, the dumb kids. We go, was it us or was it the curriculum? Mm-hmm. You know, did we not teach that well? And we go back in and we look and we say, you know, for these standards that they didn't do well on, we really only hit on that this amount of time. We need to we need to make a, a change in there. Or you know what? I don't know. I don't. I think we need PD on that. So we make a we make a change. Okay. We don't say dumb kids, terrible program. We, Throw it out. <laughs> we're 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 scientists, right? We're scientists. We're using the data to inform our decision making, and then the next year. We either we do better and we say, oh, nice job, or or we didn't even achieve what we want to achieve, and we can tweak it again. That's what cur- curriculum isn't something that you have on a grid, and every three years you review math and social studies, and then three years later you re- it's something that's ongoing. And it has to be, and I learned this from Marie Alcock. You need to really, in order to engage your learners, it has to be relevant. And so Maybe you could even be using open court. You could be using anything. And your kids, there's some big event that happens in your neighborhood. And maybe you need to substitute a text or add a text, not even that has to do with that, to engage those learners. And you, as the teachers on your team, in your PLC or XYZ or Elemental P, whatever you want to call it, you need to add that in to make it relevant and authentic. And then if you're not familiar with Goldie Muhammad and her books, Cultivating Genius, and the other one is Joy, don't ask me, I don't know the, the, the title, but look, because we have diverse learners and we have to understand the culture and the context that these children are coming from and what their assets are. And if the program doesn't have it, we don't wait for a board member to say, oh, this isn't culturally relevant or whatever. We make it culturally relevant. We're educators. We're not dumb people. We're educators. And so we need to give, we need to, so those principals, they need to seize their power, okay? They're, they're leaders. Be a leader. Take a, pro, a curricular tool. It's only a tool. If you have a hammer and... You have a nail. You need to decide which side of the hammer you're going to hammer it with. You know, you need to use the tools to get the job done. So take that program and make it work. But you need to understand what the standards are, what the what the end goal is, what are the outcomes for the student, and then you need to know your students. And also, we're not talking about this tonight, another night, but I'm going to call it belonging. 
because SEL is a trigger, but the relationship and having students belong and having that sense of belonging in your classroom and in your school is going to lower the affective filter and allow kids to engage because um, instruction, teaching is an invitational art. So Judy and Faith, you could have the best program if there was such a thing. You could be the best teacher on planet Earth. You could have the best administrator. You could have the most kick-ass classroom that ever was on planet Earth. And if the student doesn't accept the invitation, it's for naught. Because you need to have a relationship with the student. There needs to be trust. And what used to be at the end of the teacher prep classes, classroom culture and climate, that's that's the ticket. Mm-hmm. Because even if you're not a crackerjack teacher and you don't have good materials, if you have a good relationship and the student trusts you and accepts your invitation, they're going to get more from you than they would from a teacher who had everything that they don't that they're they don't feel like they belong. Judy, last thoughts. Well, love always wins, and that's so important to me. So I appreciate you talking about that. I think the key right now in education is for all of us to ask questions. Don't always accept everything at face value. You know, what is the curriculum? Why did you choose the curriculum? Don't be afraid to ask questions as teachers. We're all in this together. We cannot live in fear. I think we also have to monitor the situation carefully, right? Something new is happening. We can't wait another 20 years Mm -mm. till Till we look at it, right? We have to monitor. We'll be gone. Judy, we'll be gone. (laughs) No, I'm not going to be gone. I'm young. Then the other thing, yeah, let's not let this go on for so long. But I think that overall, I'm very optimistic. I think that we got to the phase in life as an educational system to recognize that there is a problem. And recognizing that you have a problem, whether you're diabetic or you need to lose weight or you have heart issues or you you suffer from depression, recognizing that you have a problem is the number one thing that you need when you're going into the acceptance phase. And then you get into the kick-ass phase where you're going to make things better. And you're not going to just try a little bit. I think everybody in education is about to try really hard. And I have a good feeling that in a couple of years from now, the conversation is going to look a lot different and a lot better. It has to. Yeah. It has so, to. Yeah. My, my last thought is, um, you know, this should be, I hope, eye-opening for anybody listening or watching this, that, you know, when, when we talk about change, it is for the long haul Um We've seen this before. Uh, we have to have um, the ability to stay with something. We have to train our teachers better. We have to train our leaders better. And we have to be talking to each other and understand where those gaps are. So I think, um, Maureen, you know, maybe as a dentist, you were filling cavities, right? Um, but now you're just also filling holes too. Filling and gaps, gaps. Filling <laughs> gaps, filling gaps, 
and um, trying to enlighten us. And it was such a pleasure having you on. You know, you you're just so bright and have so many good points to make. And I just thank you for being with us. It was. Well, I thank you. I thank you for having me. And the other thing that I would be remiss if I didn't say, we we spent a lot of time and we're out of time. But I, the other thing that's very important is we cannot leave parents and guardians out of the equation. Yes. Yes. Another night. uh, Yeah. Well, you know, look, my books are geared to parents, and um, I I hope people will um, listen to what Maureen said because. The parent piece is so important and making sure that they can advocate for their kids the way you did, the way you were able to um, step in. Maybe they're not going to change careers, but they should at least be able to have some basic knowledge about the whole process and to be able Mm -hmm. to be a part of this. Uh, because um, it's it's important to include them, too. So thank you, Judy. Thank you. Peace. Tell All everybody right, I wrote it down to find us. So, so hopefully I don't mess up. Okay. On Instagram, <laughs> Boxner Damsky. Follow Faith at High Five Literacy. On Twitter, at Boxner Judy. Faith on Twitter is at Faith Borkowski. Also, our Facebook group, The Literacy View, Real Teachers Letting Loose. And that's about it, right? Faith, did I forget anything? I don't think so. And um, all right. So we're going to say thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And we'll be in touch. Absolutely. All right. Take care. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.